The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Scott Wapner, two trading days until the midway mark. The S&P 500 on track for its worst first half return since 1970. Fed Chair Powell says the economy is strong enough to handle tighter policy, but... Are we already in a recession? And if we are, how do you position your portfolio for it? We'll debate that and much more with our investment committee today. With me for the hour, Liz Young, Joe Terranova, Steve Weiss, and Pete Najarian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Let's get a check in the markets right now because we're fairly stable considering the uh, the big sell-off that we saw in yesterday's session. The Dow managing uh, to be in the green right now, up by a quarter of a percent. The S&P 500 and the Nasdaq barely in the red. The Russell 2000 is down by 1.4%. And look at that yield on the 10-year note, 3.104%. What also struck me was the spread, the 210 spread. It's like three basis points at this point. Liz Young, what do you make of the action? Well, the market continues to tell us, Melissa, that people are defensively positioned, do not believe in some of these little bounces that we're getting along the way. And I think that's the right way to think about it. Unfortunately, we still need more data all the way through July, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. We've learned that inflation is not under control. The economy still needs to slow down further in order to get it under control. And now I think what the market is dealing with is, even if we are in a recession right now, will it be enough to get us to the other side on inflation? And I still think that that is a very unanswered question. Yeah, we are in in information purgatory, if you will, um, right now, given we're expecting a Fed meeting, we're expecting the start of earnings season. But, you know, in terms of a rudimentary market message, at least today, Steve Weiss, Russell's down considerably. So the the more domestically oriented companies and the spread is very thin. That tells me that the market is bracing for some sort of recession or slowdown. Yeah, no, I, I think it is, and I, I think that's uh, that's absolutely correct. Look, Jay Powell is going to say that the market could handle the rate increases, the tightening. What else is he going to say? I'm going to throw the market into recession? So you got to ignore that. But rather than repeating my bearish stance, and I'm as bearish now as I have been, and there's lots of scorn you know, heaped upon me for, for doing that since the beginning of the year, but... I think the best use of my time right now is to uh, is to stage an intervention for all those my bullish friends that feel that they are so addicted to buying the dip to keep looking for stocks that are so cheap when guess what they're going to get a lot cheaper. So just just say you know after me my name is Steve and I'm addicted to buying the market. Look the market's going to go lower cash is the best place to be and stop trying to you know to conflate Today's news, in terms of the consumer so strong, the economy strong, et cetera, with what's going to happen on the long-term view. And the long-term view is that we are going to recession. Even if we don't, that's going to continue to be the narrative of the people that really follow these things 
rather than those who are perennially bullish and make their living being bullish. So there is no safe place to hide. There is nothing that's cheap enough because you don't know what the earnings are going to be. So sure, you'll get the typical that we've seen every quarter where perhaps we get outperformance 60%, which will be low, of companies will exceed their estimates, but the guidance will be lower and the numbers will keep coming down. So you will have to ask yourself the question, is the market cheap? And I don't believe it is. They will, the market will overshoot in the PE like it has in the past, and as will the Fed. And I think you can take that to the bank. I have not seen so much scorn directed at one individual on the investment committee, uh, more so than I have against <laughs> Steve Weiss, that's for sure, particularly about your stance about cash. But I think it Thank always you, comes Mel. down to, I, I just want to point that out in case people didn't direct any hate, they could feel free to do so right now. Um, but in turn, we keep, we keep on getting back to that, that ultimate question. And I guess that's why I'm talking about information purgatory. We don't know how to value the stocks. And so we're waiting for that guidance. Pete, but I'll pose it to you. Even if we get that guidance, do we, isn't there just a grain of doubt in that guidance? I mean, what did we see from the retailers? What did yeah. we see from Target, for instance? Your target, Pete, mm -hmm. your CEO, Brian Cornell, yeah. came out with earnings a couple weeks later. Mm -hmm. What happened in terms of inventory markdowns? And then what happened, you know, a few weeks after that in terms of talking about a hot Halloween, everybody's going to go partying, everybody's going back to college, it's going to be hot, mm -hmm. hot, hot. What do we believe here? Well, I think that's why, you know, you've heard me use the word cautious for a while now. And the, the, the one thing, and I, and I understand what Steve's talking about in terms of the bearish view that he's got right now, it makes total sense. We see more and more, you see, in my, matter of fact, in my portfolio, more puts than you've seen in a very long period of time, Mel. So a lot of that is just trying to position either as a hedge, but actually trying to be even a little bit more aggressive by having some of those puts, because I do think, like Steve's talking about, that we do have some downside potential that, that could be there. If that's the case, I want to have some puts so I can profit from that. So that's exactly what I'm doing. I've been buying puts all around the world, as a matter of fact, because they're not just you know, the, in the spiders or something like that or in the queues. I'm looking over whether or not you want to look at the UK itself, you want to look at Germany, you want to look at a lot of different places. I want to have that protection in place or at least something, not just protection, but maybe I can make a little bit of money on that put position as I'm looking to the downside because I do think that there's a lot of different shock waves that could go through things and it could cause the markets to go down. Now you brought up Target, which was a great example. They miscalculated big time in Target. Brian Cornell fessed up. They said exactly that. They bought the wrong types of things. They weren't able to sell them. And they were essentially going to just cut those out, Mel, and get rid of them as, as much as, and as fast as they can. So the second half of the year, the, the, they can have a little bit better shot at getting some of those numbers. So I think that they're going to be true to their word. We know the margins are going to be absolutely awful in this coming quarter. But they're going to have to be able to, to bite the bullet on that because they think going forward, as long as they've ordered properly, they're going to be in a good position to actually get back to being the target that they were. So there's a lot of different elements going on right now. Volatility is in this kind of an interesting spot, Mel, where it's not quite 30. We keep pushing up on 30, and then we pull right back again. So this somewhere between 25 and 30, call it right now, for the volatility index. It's not a no man's land, but it certainly makes it a little bit more difficult to determine exactly how you want to position yourself. Steve mentioned the addiction to buying the dip. I think that that addiction, um, that tendency is starting is breaking, uh, Joe. And I, I think it's all in a matter of time frame in terms of what you know when you deploy that cash and and for how you know at what price. Yes, you may not catch the very bottom, but if you've got a very long time frame, it could be a great buying opportunity for some of these larger larger names. 
It, it could, but but I think you know if you were to ask me what are you most negative about, it's not not so much price. Um, if you go back and you study the 12 recessions since World War II, the average decline is 30 percent. So maybe we drop down to the 3,400 level where the previous high for the S&P was in February of 2020. I'm not so much concerned about price. I'm concerned about time. And and to your point, we've been conditioned to expect any type of correction in the market since the great financial crisis to be a V. It's a V recovery and it's a V-shaped correction and markets come back quickly. What, what's so clear to me is that this is a U. If you were to say to an investor, look, the market's going to go down 60 percent and it's going, to it's going to go down and recover over the course of six months, or the market's going to go down 20 percent and it's going to go down and recover over the course of 18 months, Every investor would say, OK, I'll take the 60% because it's coming back in six months. That's what's different. That's what's more frustrating about this environment. It's a you. It's not coming back quickly. And to the point of recession or not, we already are in a valuation recession. The multiple on the S&P is contracted from 21 to 16. That's being reflected in the four leading sectors being energy, healthcare, staples, and utility. The market's telling you it's positioning for an economic contraction. So you're right. We have information purgatory. We really don't know what's going to be coming until the month of July. And the market's going to remain in a malaise overall. And I think investors have to just go comfortable. The only solution is through the course of time. I'm surprised that all of you are so cautious about the markets to such a degree. Um, it's, it's interesting. The sectors that Joe had mentioned, those are the sectors, according to the B of A, you know, fund flow survey that institutional invest and managers are, are allocating to. Um, Liz, which ones do you think are, are the best sectors to be in um, if we are seeing that U, if we're at the bottom of that U right now? Well, I want to make a couple points first. We are in information purgatory, but we got information today that I think everybody needs to pay attention to, and that's that first quarter GDP revision. So we only revised it down by a tenth of a percent, but the numbers moved around, and we took consumption down and inventory up. So to Pete's point earlier about Target miscalculating the inventory that they had, I don't think that's the only company we're going to hear about for the rest of the year. And I think the consumer discretionary and possibly parts of the consumer staples sectors are going to see more pain because of this shift in consumer behavior. That's going to continue. Now to this point about the U-shaped market, think about the sequence of events here. The market usually bottoms first. I'm not calling a bottom, but I'm just saying the market usually bottoms first, then earnings bottom, then the economy bottoms. So we're still waiting even for the bottom in earnings. We're waiting for earnings to just even get drawn down to look like they're falling. And then the economy happens. So we still have a long way to go before we can really feel confident that we're coming out of this. But I do think it's going to be different than it was when we saw the big drawdown in March of 2020, where investors looked back and said, darn, I wish I would have bought on March 23rd. I think this is going to look like investors looking back and saying, Darn, I wish I would have bought at some point in the summer of 2022. So it's okay to start thinking about dripping in, particularly in sectors that you think are good for the long term. But when I say long term, I mean beyond two years. We have to look out that far. I'd be looking at healthcare. I would be looking at some of those big tech names that you believe in over the long term. And then I'd wait for consumer discretionary to really get beaten up and drip back into there as well. Um, Steve Weiss, where are you the most concerned 
um, sector-wise when it comes to earnings revisions lower. Um, I'm looking at Adam Parker's note, Adam Parker of Trivarian. He says he expects earnings estimates will start to be revised lower next week. And it's crazy, and I'm paraphrasing because he doesn't actually say crazy. It's crazy that earnings expectations consensus right now for 2022 are higher than they were when we started the year. I don't even see how that is possible. Well, <laughs> I don't know how it's possible. I, I don't get it. I, I think the analysts living in fantasy land. Keep in mind, you know, since Reg FD came in many, many years ago, analysts have to work a lot harder to do their to do their job because companies aren't telling them anymore. So, um, so I think they're looking at the wrong thing, or maybe they're still just listening to companies who also haven't brought the numbers down. So I don't know what it is, but analysts have tunnel vision. They're assigned a sector and a subsector of a sector. So that's what they form their opinions on. Look, where am I most worried? I'm most worried with anything to do with the consumer. So the consumer is under siege. And for all the talk, and we hear it every day in this network, consumer so strong, consumer so strong. That's just a load of crap. You're ignoring what you're seeing in the consumer polls where they're saying we're scared. You're seeing 40, 50 year lows in consumer confidence. And why? Because all you have to do is drive by a gas pump. All you have to do is visit a grocery store. That's the real world. So I'd be worried about those revisions. Look, Brian Cornell, you know, Pete's buddy, great CEO. We can all agree on that. Did a major job turning Target around. But as you pointed out, they came out, they lowered numbers, and two weeks later, they lowered them again. So they have no idea about the, ver about the velocity of the decline of the consumer. So anything related to consumer, and that includes the auto companies. Sure, they're trading at low multiples. By the way, those six to seven time multiples, those were the historic multiples if you go back before free money existed. So no, they're not cheap here, and those numbers will come down because the consumer appetite for paying higher lease payments or higher financing on autos is going away. So look, I think the here and now and the near term, and if it's two years, I'm ha I'd be content not to be in the market for two years because it's your point of entry that defines your return. So if I've got to wait two years, man, I I'd just rather move remove the angst and, and hang out and find something else to do. Is that a warning for the viewers that uh, you're going to be sitting on this investment committee talking about your cash position for the next two, two years? <laughs> I'm just joking. No, I know no, that you no, play look, no, no, no. But it, it's not a warning. It's, it's yeah. a join me. I'm an inclusive individual, <laughs> Melissa. I want company. I don't want scorn. I want love. Come on now. <laughs> You're Mr. Love, that's for sure, I say sarcastically. Exactly, um, that's Steve, uh, Pete Nigerian, yeah. the point I was making about Target, though, is that <laughs> yeah. if Target couldn't anticipate, then who can? To your point, in the past, a, the Target is a great mm -hmm. executor, right? And if they're best in class, mm -hmm. then how about for all the other right. companies out there who don't operate at such efficiency levels, et cetera, who may not be able to execute through this and very, very <laughs> tricky environment? Yeah, you're exactly right, Mel. And I can tell you that it's a great question because I view Brian Cornell as one of the very best in the retail arena. And then I'll also look over at like a Home Depot. They have struggled as well. When you look at their, where that stock was and where it is now, it's been hammered pretty much to the downside as well. Spring is usually a good time of the year for Home Depot. It hasn't been this year. So I think that when you've got quality names out there, quality run companies by, by the entire C-suite, not just one person, not just the Brian Cornells of the world, but they've always been able to execute. 
Well, they're not executing very well right now. They're having a really difficult time. I think to Steve's point, it's a, it's a matter of it's food, it's gas, it's all of those things that's right in front of everybody. And I agree 100%. Are they really that strong? Everybody keeps telling us that the consumer is that strong. Are they really? Well, take a look at Bed Bath & Beyond today. I mean, that's a great example. This is a company that was struggling. They went to Target to grab one of their folks. They got them. And unfortunately, they have not been able to turn that ship around at all. As a matter of fact, not only not turned around, but this is a company that you just wonder how long are these guys going to be around because this stock has been absolutely hammered. They had a terrible quarter again. Now he's gone and now they've had to step in and put somebody else in charge who's off already on the board to be in charge of the company. This is going to be a really difficult time, Mel. This is a company now that's only a $400 million market cap. This is a company that used to be in the multi-billions. So it gives you a great example of how difficult times are. And I think Steve's right to that point is, it isn't as easy as everybody thinks. I don't think the consumer is as liquid as everybody continues to talk about. And I think it's very, very difficult for the consumer as they're deciding where are they going to spend their money. And that's going to be the tough decision, but that's going to affect a lot of different companies, including those that are at the very top. And we're already seeing that happen. But if Ryan Cohen tweets an ice cream cone and the ticker symbol BBBY, then everything could turn around. I'm just joking. Ryan Cohen, of course, being the activist <laughs> investor in, in Bed Bath & Beyond. Joe, you know what struck me is a, a lot of movement on mega cap tech names today. A lot of analysts actually coming to grips with the fact that maybe we are in a market downturn and adjusting price targets accordingly, but keeping, and I'm, I'm sort of generalizing, keeping their overweight rating on these stocks. Um, I'm sure a lot of people out there are wondering, should I step into an alphabet? Is now the time for an Amazon? Well, I, I think of it in terms of Microsoft, Alphabet, and Apple. If you mm -hmm. don't own these names, I mean, what else are you waiting for at this point? Um, I think it's about maybe losing less than if you have to be or if you are going to be invested in the market. You're not going to take Steve's position of being fully invested in cash. If you're going to actually have to be invested, then maybe you want to lose a little bit less. But I think these are companies that kind of have... The, the fiscal characteristics of being able to persevere through a very challenging economic environment. They have the operating margin, they have the profit margin, they have the free cash flow generation in the here and now, and they have the capital allocation strategy. So I, I think what the, the, the ultimately the big challenge is for these companies, and even some of the companies that Pete were talking about, like a Home Depot and a, and a Target, it, it's not specific to the way they're operating their business and you know, Melissa, it's, it's kind of frustrating because I think where we are right now within the market is all self-inflicted. And that's where the frustration resides itself because these are all policy mistakes. These are fiscal policy mistakes. These are monetary policy mistakes that we're paying the price for right now. We can't seem to agree on there's such a divisive nature in the country. We can't decide whether it's sunny or cloudy out on any given day. So this is in 2000 or 2008, where the consumer balance sheet or the, or the corporate balance sheet was, was operating with a, a, a disregard for financial restraint and, and prudence. Corporations and consumers have done the right thing, but ultimately, at a certain point, how much are they able to remain resilient in an environment where we just keep tripping on ourselves over and over again, both with fiscal and monetary policy? All right. I mean, I, I agree with that. I certainly agree with that. Here we are, though. 
this is the market we have and this is the market we have to trade. And so, Liz, as it, as it concerns big cap tech, how do you think about that trade, particularly when it seems like yields have settled down, at least for now? Lower yields, lower 10-year yields, specifically longer-term yields, should be good for big cap tech, tech in general. Well, sure, they should be. But as you pointed out at the, t- the top of the show, we're still very close to inversion again. And that inversion hasn't necessarily been long lasting. They haven't been very deep. But if we keep stringing them together, they're a clear signal. And big cap tech, considering the fact that we're still in this hiking cycle, and I would argue at the beginning of this hiking cycle, probably still going to see pressure and a lid on those returns for a while. That doesn't make them a bad trade. It just makes them a necessarily patient trade. So, and I believe Joe was the one that made this point. You might look back and think to yourself, what, what else am I waiting for? It's okay to enter these trades right now, but don't have high expectations of what's going to happen until the Fed at least starts to lower the, the amount of their hikes. And that might not be until much later in the year. I want to uh, clarify, Steve Weiss, you have a lot of cash, but you actually do own equities, correct? Yeah, I do. Uh, I've been about 10% net long. However, as you bring it up today, I'm, uh, I'm flat <laughs> because I'm short the queues. My expectation is that the market will trade lower today into the PCE number tomorrow. And I'll decide what I'll do with that short or if I'll go to my major bullish view of 10% net long by the end of the day. It's sort of like at this point, you know, just uh, just gamification of, of, of the market. Um, but you take opportunities to make money and protect your remaining capital when you can. So that's my strategy. Uh, tomorrow, look, you can, get, you can get a number that the market embraces, and you'll see a rally of you know, maybe 1,000 Dow points. We've seen it before. But that'll be by 11 a.m. Come 12 p.m., you'll see the market then trade down. So I don't know. That's why it's just not worth getting involved. But I thought that there's an opportunity to maybe make some money on the short side, that's why I'm sure the queue's very, very liquid and get in and out without thinking much about it. I've got stops in, as I always do on those trades, and we'll see what transpires through the end of the day. All right. Up next, shares of Carnival sinking on the back of a bearish new note, plus Goldman Sachs higher on a new street call. We'll discuss them both in our calls of the day. Halftime's back in two. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today.
Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Shares of Carnival plunging today, reiterated underweight at Morgan Stanley. Target being cut to seven bucks from 13. The firm introduced a zero dollar bear case. It's one of our calls of the day. Pete, you stone calls in this one. Um, certainly a tough time for companies in yeah. general that have a lot of debt on their balance sheet. And certainly the cruise lines levered up during the during the pandemic. They are levered up. There's no doubt about it. All you got to do is take a look at those, uh, the fundamentals of these, these companies, all of them, Royal and Norwegian and, and Carnival, all of them are in the same spot, Mel. I think the other issue is, you know, they've, they've had to deal with so many different things over the last two years that they've, they've been put into a really tight box and it's very, very difficult to get out of it. And I think that's part of what they're facing as well. And, and are people really willing to go back? Do they have the discretionary money to go out on these cruise ships? No is the answer most likely. And Morgan Stanley certainly looking at this company right now saying, hey, look, worst case scenario, zero for Carnival. That's pretty unbelievable, right? I mean, but that's that's actually something that we've seen many times before when they've talked about what some of the potential outlooks really look like. But that's pretty amazing, Mel. I mean, that's that's something like I, I think that would really shock just about every one of us. When you look at the short interest in a lot of these various cruise ships, you can understand why every once in a while you do get that little air pocket and that little pop to the upside like we did through all the memes and everything else a couple of years ago. We're not seeing those kind of pops any longer. And that's what I think when I've seen some of the call buying, most likely that's why we're seeing that buying is just looking for the, that day or that week where maybe the stock has a chance to maybe have a push to the upside based upon how short interest there is. And if it starts to move a little bit, they're going to get that kind of pop. But unfortunately for most, it continues to go down, 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 down across the board. Take your pick. All three of them are looking pretty much in a rough spot right now, given how much debt they really do have on the balance sheet. It's hard to believe that zero is even any sort of case scenario, considering it didn't hit zero during the pandemic. And those would arguably be one of the worst times ever that faced the industry, except for the fact that they levered up as much as they could during the pandemic. And so how much financial wiggle room do they have now to withstand a recession, Joe? I know that you've, you've never been on a cruise, never want to go on one. Would you ever buy a stock? Nope. Would, I wouldn't buy a stock that's got a $9 billion market cap and $30 billion worth of debt. I mean, how, how much dilution are you accepting if you're buying this stock? Obviously, they're going to have to sell some shares to raise capital at some point. So I, I think this is a classic example of an environment in which we're in now where the cost of capital is a moving target. It's not free anymore. You don't want to own the equity of these highly indebted companies. If you're going to look for an opportunity, well, go listen to Mark Lazary, who's probably the best in the world at doing it, and identify opportunities in the debt market. This is a classic high-yield opportunity. Mm-hmm. I don't even think I would accept that risk-reward opportunity in the high-yield market as it relates specifically to Carnival. But equity, $30 billion in debt with, with the, the need to raise capital? No way. No chance. Let's move on to Goldman Sachs, getting an upgrade today to a buy uh, from a neutral at Bank of America. Um, and of course, this comes after the banks disclosed their capital uh, payout plans. And it did seem to divide. And we talked about this yesterday in the halftime report in terms of the business models of these various banks. Steve Weiss, you can trade your way through tough times. But when if you're heavy in lending, heavy in deposits, it's going to be harder to make money in this environment. Without a doubt. And, uh, you know, I still own some Goldman. It's one of the positions that I have. I still own B of A. I've cut those back like I have everything. But look, 
you know, a few things happen during this kind of environment. Haven't been on that side of the fence. Uh, Goldman will be fine. They've got a very, very deep bench. They may lose some of their higher priced talent who said, you know what, it's going to be too tough for the next few years, so I'm just going to retire and go hang out in Hamptons or wherever they're going to go. And then it'll be next person up. And guess what? That'll be lower cost labor. So they have variable compensation. So the banks more so, and the investment banks more so than maybe any other industry, can adjust their compensation, which is a big line. It typically runs more than 50% of revenues. So that'll help buffer it. Uh, the equity markets and the issuance in the debt markets, I mean, you're going to have to see them come back at some point, but it's not going to be for a year probably. So I'm not willing to give up the entire positions because I think particularly Goldman is extremely well managed and I just don't want to be absent any equities, but it's going to be rough going. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, I'm willing to I'm willing to stay with with them. Liz, you like financials in general for the second half is now the entry point. I do like financials in general, and, and I've been in financials and saying that for a long time. Obviously, the flat yield curve has not boded well for the financials trade, but I do think that they've gotten overly killed in this market, and they could bounce in the second half. And if you look at the ones that are more exposed to the consumer, as we've already pointed out, they're obviously going to get hit if the consumer gets hit. But the big financials that are well capitalized, well run, can do well if and when we take the Fed off the gas pedal a little bit in the tightening cycle. Um, and Pete, you own Goldman, which viewers of the show will know. You also own Capital yep. One Financial, which I didn't realize. That's a little bit more consumer exposed. I'm wondering what you're thinking is if you do think the it consumer is. could face some stress. Right. Yeah. Well, Capital One was based upon how, how strong they were for a long period of time, Mel, with the, in the credit card world. And I don't think a lot of people understood just how big of a piece of the puzzle that was for them. It was about 60 percent of those revenues. But I think when you go back to Goldman Sachs, I really did like this one. I was looking at it for a really long time, Mel, and I, and I determined that, you know, based upon where it was trading price to book, it just made so much sense. I bought it at about 312, so I'm underwater there. But I've been selling calls against it now since I bought it. And the premiums that I'm able to get because of the environment we're in, the implied volatilities in the options right now, it really has offered something very, very nice to give you a really nice cushion back to the downside then with whatever premiums I've been able to sell to the upside. So, so far I've taken in a fair amount of premium and I'll continue to do that. I think this is a company that has far more upside than it is right now. We've seen it make a big run, but then all of a sudden we had this pullback all the way back, thinking all the way, all the way down to 280. I was considering adding to it there. I did not, but I'm certainly watching that very closely if we get another dip. All right, coming up, a hedge fund going into liquidation as a crypto carnage takes its toll. Could crypto contagion spill over into the banking sector? We're following the money next on Halftime. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. 
Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Hello there, I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's our CNBC News update right now. NATO has officially invited Finland and Sweden to join the alliance. This is a sign of just how dramatically the Kremlin's war on Ukraine has upended the previous military landscape in Europe. Hundreds of thousands of troops are now on high alert while the world waits to see when Russia's president reacts. Snap announcing Snapchat Plus, rolling out a $3.99 monthly subscription plan for Snapchat that unlocks exclusive and pre-release features. The announcement comes after Snapchat gave a disappointing sales outlook for the current quarter when it first reported first quarter results in April. And the White House announced it would sharply expand the availability of monkeypox vaccines. They'll also roll out more testing for the virus as the number of monkeypox cases globally rises. Meantime, the World Health Organization is warning of sustained transmission worldwide. The WHO urging precaution for high-risk groups like pregnant women, immunocompromised people, and children. Keep an eye on that. Melissa. Contessa, thank you. Contessa mm -hmm. Brewer. The crypto crash is fueling concerns of contagion spilling into the broader financial system. Or Leslie Pickers following the money. Leslie, what have you found? Hey, Melissa. So jitters around the potential contagion to the broader financial system have plagued a few publicly traded bank stocks this year. Silvergate Capital and Signature Bank have declined more than 60 percent and 40 percent respectively in 2022 over their ties to the crypto space. But analysts and Fed officials believe that, by and large, the crypto challenges are contained, at least for now. This, even as we've seen those in the crypto ecosystem, Lender Celsius and Hedge Fund Three Arrows, reportedly exploring bankruptcy options in recent days. In a call with reporters last week tied to the Fed, uh, this Fed's stress test, Fed officials said the banking system has limited exposure to cryptocurrencies, and KBW in a recent note said that across its universe of large and small publicly traded bank stocks, analysts have, quote, found no concerning exposures that would result in anything beyond some lost deposits over time. KBW notes that the biggest risk to any banks is deposit outflow as a result of lower crypto prices and balance sheet exposure is limited. They included Silvergate and Signature Bank in that risk assessment. Mel? We've also heard about some difficulties, Leslie, um, from some of the sh quote unquote shadow banks within the crypto world, names like BlockFi and Genesis and Galaxy Digital, which lent against crypto assets. And I'm, I'm curious as to whether or not there's a sense if there is a, a risk within the shadow banking system, which has come to such prominence um, in recent years. Um, traditional banks may not face that risk, but a lot of that risk was transferred to shadow banking. Correct. No, the shadow banking is a totally different story as Celsius would also fall into that category. And they had substantially, at least according to a Wall Street Journal analysis, substantially higher leverage than you would see with a traditional bank. And so as a result, this part of the crypto economy is experiencing much more of a, a, a fallout from the lower prices. And you could continue to see that over time. What the Fed is concerned about and the analysts are more of this kind of like regulated traditional banks, the types of companies that are 
publicly traded that you can track. At this point in time, what they see there is that the contagion that's taking place over on the shadow banking side with regard to the crypto economy isn't necessarily spilling into the much uh, more vast and expansive traditional banking system, at least not yet. All right. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Up next, the Apple trade, a big anniversary for the iPhone. But what is next? Halftime returns right after this. Today marks the 15th anniversary of Apple's very first iPhone in the U.S. Shares have soared more than 3,000 percent since then, but trading in a bear market right now. CNBC tech correspondent Steve Kovac joins us with a look at what is going to drive Apple's growth from here. Services revenues and recurring revenue. That, that's the hope, Steve. That's the hope, right? That, that is always the hope. And like, Mel, you got to think about this. Everything Apple does ties back to the iPhone. Sure, they sell gazillions of units every quarter, every year, but it's the stuff they layer on top of that that really has been driving growth for the company. So that means AirPods, that means Apple Watch, that means all the services uh, businesses that we keep talking about, the App Store especially. That is that is where the growth is coming from. Now, how do we project that forward? And there are these reports coming out that this fall we're going to get that long-awaited so-called Apple Prime plan where you can sign up, get an iPhone every year, and then bundle in a bunch of those services. And I think that's where the next level of growth could really come from. It's not going to come from a headset necessarily. That's not going to be designed to replace the iPhone, just like the Apple Watch didn't replace the iPhone. It's really all centered around this iPhone ecosystem. Keep people locked in, keep people coming back and upgrading and paying for the subscription services, Mel. Um, Pete, you've been pretty outspoken in terms of uh, your belief in the services revenue stream, which has been growing as a percent of total revenue. Um, but there is some you know, concern that this is not recurring revenue that they need the recurring revenue. So let's say we, they do the hardware subscription. That's recurring. Does that greatly improve your outlook for Apple? Does it make the outlook for Apple look a little bit different, Mel? And I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough is the fact that how they've gotten into the financial world, how they've gotten into credit cards and the strength that they've got there. They just continue to in- innovate. And I know Steve and I will go back and forth about that. but. You know, the innovation side of where they go in terms of what their exposure is, I think, is the, is the key to why Apple's had so much success. They just continue to move forward. And whether or not they're looking at those AR glasses, whatever they're looking at, they seem to be on the cusp of something else that they can actually introduce to the customer. So um, I think there's still a lot of things into the future for Apple. I mean, there's always still the talk about some form of car. They don't even really need that. They've got CarPlay. They've got incredible exposure that way as well. So there's a lot of different ways that I think Apple can continue to make uh, the future look a little bit brighter for themselves, you know, as they go forward. I mean, along that that notion, Steve Kovac, uh, you know, of being the, the operating system for your life, what are some of the other opportunities that um, people are talking about where Apple can can play. I mean, and, and what is their metaverse strategy, if anything? <laughs> the metaverse strategy, I mean, when uh, yeah. Tim Cook was asked about metaverse, I think two quarters ago on the call, he just pointed to all their work in augmented reality, which means you hold up the phone and through the phone's camera, you can kind of see digital images on there. Is that the metaverse? Eh, maybe. Uh, but the the glasses would be where they really play in there. And keep in mind, metaverse kind of means different things to different people. But what, what we were just talking about, again, everything that was just mentioned, 
it all ties back to the iPhone, whether that's Apple Pay, whether that's CarPlay. Yeah, it's going in the car, but again, you need an iPhone to use all that. So all these experiences still rely heavily on the iPhone, and that's the point I want to drive home. And that's that, and that's the point about Tim Cook's uh, reign over the company since 2011, is how do we make the iPhone the center of your life and build an ecosystem of hardware and services around it? And that's where they're finding the success, Mel. Yeah, Joe, you know, Cook has been sort of criticized as not being transformational in terms of the kinds of products he brings to market. Um, but maybe it doesn't need to do that at this point, at this stage in life, right, of its life, I should say. <laughs> well, he, he, he certainly has done an excellent job in terms of customer satisfaction mm -hmm. uh, because that ecosystem has led to a historically high customer retention level. And what you'll see as we move into the fall with the introduction of the iPhone 14 is probably 20 to 30% of the instilled iPhone customer base is gonna need to upgrade their phones because they haven't done it in the better part of the last two or three years. So I think that's gonna be a, a positive condition, but I just think overall, you're owning the company for the balance sheet, you're owning the company for the degree of satisfaction that you're getting in, in, in utilizing the ecosystem. And it's reflected, as I said, in a remarkably high retention rate. Steve, thanks for joining us, Steve Kovac. Thanks. Still ahead on the Halftime Report, Pete's latest trades in unusual activity. We are watching the airline sector as they come under fire by uh, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. Uh, he is sending a, a, a letter to Secretary Pete Buttigieg, the transportation secretary, complaining basically about all the delays in the airline industry. He's urging the secretary to take action in three areas um, to require airlines to promptly refund passengers for flights that have been delayed over an hour, to impose fines on airlines for flights that are delayed more than two hours, and to impose fines on airlines for scheduling flights that they are unable to properly staff. The main complaint here is the U.S. government gave taxpayer money to the airline industry, and they owe it to the American public to run these flights well. Um, let's get Phil LeBeau here um, to weigh in on this. Phil? You know, Melissa, I'm not surprised to see this letter from, Barry, uh, from Bernie Sanders. I uh, also received it from his press office, and they said, look, this is what we believe should be done with the airline industry. I'm not sure we're going to see any action by the DOT to impose fines on airlines when it comes to delays and cancellations for a couple of reasons. One, some of this has been well documented in terms of the number of pilots available to take flights. There is an allegation that's made within this letter uh, that cites an American Airlines pilot, Dennis Tasier. He said it on our air, where the allegation is that perhaps, perhaps American is scheduling flights knowing that there are no pilots to take those flights. There's no proof of that. Now, Dennis Tasier, when he made those comments on Squawk Box, uh, and he's made these comments about the fact that the airline needs to do better, keep in mind that the airline pilots union at American is in the midst of contract negotiations with American. So there are more than a few people who say, wait a second, do they have an ax to grind here in terms of portraying this situation as being worse than it actually is? Bottom line is this, Melissa. The FAA and the DOT are unlikely to impose fines anytime soon. I've talked with a number of executives uh, in the federal government. They don't want to do that because, first of all, that's not the, the perhaps the best approach. They did that uh, a number of years ago with tarmac delays, and that did assist in cutting down on tarmac delays. But the other issue that you have to keep in mind, Melissa, 
there's an air traffic controller shortage that is also factoring in to a number of the delays in Florida, where the number of flights scheduled in there is more than it was pre-pandemic, and also into the New York area. And we've talked about the air traffic control situation there. It's unclear how much of this is uh, pilot-related, how much of this is air traffic controller-related, how much of it is because there's weather and there are legitimate delays and cancellations. So I, I, I think it's an interesting letter that Bernie Sanders has sent here. I'm not sure it's going to get a whole lot of traction. All right. Thanks for that context, Phil Shortages on top of shortages don't help. Pete, I think you're in Delta. Yeah, unfortunately, I have some Delta calls. I've got some puts in the other airlines, but... Uh, those Delta calls are probably going to burn up, Mel, because unfortunately things were looking good at a different time, point in time when I bought those calls, but things have changed very dramatically uh, in a very short period of time. So I'm not expecting those calls to do anything for me at all. But I do have some puts in American Airlines as well. All right. Stick with us here on Halftime. Hey, Mel, Pete's, uh, Mel, can uh, I, hey, Mel, Quickly, no. quickly. I'm just quick going to go to break up quickly. Yeah. I just <laughs> want to say what everybody else is thinking. With everything going on in the world, this is what Bernie Sanders is spending his time on? Come on, there's nothing there. <laughs> time to move on. All right. So I had to get it out. I, yeah, I know, I know, just burning. All right. Um, stick with us here on Halftime. Unusual activity from Pete's up next. Let's get to unusual activity. So, Pete, what are you seeing in the options market? Yeah, well, you know, earlier, Mel, we were talking about Carnival Cruise and just that entire industry. Well, Royal Caribbean's one of the names that hit today as well, and it's actually hit more than once today. But the one I want to focus on is they bought 11,000 of the September 20 puts today for 90 cents in Royal. So looking for a little bit more downside. Stock was trading a little over 36, 36 and a quarter at the time. But it just shows you that there are, and they, by the way, they bought Norwegian puts today. They've been very, very aggressively positioning in the cruise ship area. Secondly, I've got another one, a Chinese one, ASHR. It's the China 300. It's the A shares. Now, this one's pretty good because they're selling out of some of the closer options, the July 34 calls, selling out of those and buying 15,000 of the September 36 calls. That's with ASHR trading right around 33 and a half. They paid about 75 cents for those. We've seen more and more of this malware. Most of the world, we are seeing very much bearish paper, puts being bought across the board, but not in China. They finally have stopped, and now we've been seeing more and more bullish paper in some of these Chinese ETFs. I'm in these calls, I'll be in these calls, but I will not buy stocks over there still. I will only be in the derivatives world, but I think that we're starting to see a little bit of a push to the upside. Just take a look at the charts over the last month or so. Yeah, one of the few areas in the world with accommodative monetary policy. Uh, by the way, Steve right. Weiss, do you have anything to get off your chest? I'm going to head to break. I just wanted to clear that with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go ahead. Okay. You know, I've hated that tie Pete's worn for 10 okay. years. That's Cut all I'm going to say. Final trade next on Halftime. <laughs> Tonight at 5 on Fast Money, we'll be talking to Dan Moorhead of Pantera Capital about crypto winter, where Bitcoin is going, and what he is calling the Fed's Ponzi scheme. That's tonight, 5 p.m. Eastern. Final trade time here on the Halftime Report. Liz Young. Healthcare. You can still benefit from that defensive trade, but not nearly as overbought as the classic utilities and staples defensive sectors. Joe Terranova. Coca-Cola. Use a tight stop below 59.50. Steve Weiss. You know, I want to give you a buy. I'd be in cash, but here's a buy, and I own it. B-I-T-I. 
short crypto. Mm. And Pete Nigerian, what do you say? Well, this is a beautiful tie, number one. But secondly, I'm going to give you AMD. Earlier, I had some, I had some, had some put buying in there earlier with the, the 78 strike that expires on Friday. So in the short term, looking for a little bit of a push to the downside in AMD. It's a very pleasant plaid, Pete. Very pleasant. Um, that does it for Thank us here you. on the half. It's a nice report. clip on, Melissa. <laughs> I'll see you tonight at five for Fast Money. <laughs> Meantime, do not go anywhere. The exchange with Kelly Evans begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.